Amen. Thank you, guys. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can flip over to the book of Ruth, or if you want to use one of the Bibles that's in the uh, racks under the chairs, you can do that and follow along with us. It's also going to be on the screen today. We're going to be looking at the book of Ruth. We're going to start a little bit different today than we normally do. Um, before I get into that, though, I just remembered I have to announce something. And what I wanted to announce to you was that next Sunday we are also honoring our graduates. So if you have a graduate in your household be graduating from high school, we want to um, recognize them. I'm going to ask for the parents, mom or dad, to come down here to the front of the church after church, meet with Jason. He's going to talk to you about some sort of uh, picture slideshow that he's putting together. So we look forward to celebrating that. Um, but back to the book of Ruth. We're going to do something a little bit unorthodox today, and that is we're going to start with the end of the story. Uh, the book of Ruth has this wonderful, flowery, happy ending to it, and so we want to jump in right there. Um, that's not all that there is to Ruth's life. There's actually some tragedy, there's some heartache, there's some struggle that goes on, but we want to read the happy ending um, here at this story. And our text comes to us from Ruth chapter 4. We're going to be reading verses 13 and then verses 16 through 17. So if you would, stand with me for the reading of God's Word, Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. And again, I remind you that the reason why we stand week in and week out is to be reminded that this is where truth comes from. The Bible is God's truth, friends, in written form. That's what it is. And so when we look for truth, when we hear different opinions out in our culture, friends, if they don't line up with what God's word has to say, then we toss that stuff, that stuff out and we default back to what God's word says. So um, let's read together Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. You may be seated. Thank you so much. Wasn't that a wonderful ending to Ruth's life story? You say, amen, let's head on out of here, go get some Mother's Day eating, right? Well, no, that's not where we want to stop, where we want to end it. Um, that we want to go back and kind of rewind a little bit and capture some of what happens along and up to this point in Ruth's life where she has this happy ending. Um, if you notice there, at the end of the story in verse 17, it points out that Ruth's great-grandson was none other than the great King David of Israel himself, who is known worldwide. People talk about David worldwide. He's celebrated worldwide. We have sermons that we preach Sunday after Sunday that include discussions about this guy named David, and that happens to be Ruth's great-grandson. It'd be like me saying that my great-grandson was Abraham Lincoln. Right? That'd be something to walk around about and be proud about. Well, Ruth has that same kind of lineage that comes from her, this great generational blessing that takes place. But again, that was not the beginning of her story. So let's go back to the beginning of the book and see how all of these events take place. So Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1, so we're going all the way back to the beginning. Ruth chapter 1 and verse 1 reads, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and man, and man from Bethlehem and Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. Now let's take a look at our map here. You can see Moab. It's due east of the Dead Sea. The point I'm trying to make here and showing you this on the map is that Moab is a separate country from Israel. It is not a part of the territory of national Israel. It's not a part 
of Israel. And so they're leaving their homeland. They're leaving Bethlehem. They're leaving Israel to go to this foreign territory. And the reason why they go there, the text says, is because there's a famine back in Israel. They're hoping they can find more fertile soil that they can farm and earn a living in the country of Moab. Verse 2 says, the man's name was Elimelech and his wife's name was Naomi. They had two sons named Malon and Kilion. Now those two words translated into English, those two names, Malon and Kilion, translate weakly and sickly. This lady, I mean, who does that? She named her children weakly and sickly. I mean, maybe they came out, they were a little bit smaller than maybe your average baby. I don't know, but something possessed Naomi and Elimelech to name their children weakly and sickly, which kind of tells us, as we're reading through the story, that it sounds like this thing is heading for some sort of tragedy in the story. And sure enough, that's what happened. It says at the end of verse 2 that they went to Moab and they lived there. Uh, Verse 3, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons, weakly and sickly. Verse 4, her two boys married Moabite women named Orpah and the other named Ruth. After they had lived about 10 years, we learn, verse 5, that both weakly and sickly also die. So here's the situation as it stands. They're in a foreign land in Moab, no longer in national Israel, no longer at home. It'd be similar to you going down south of the border or going up north of the border and living in a land that is not your own. And so because of that, you know, they're, who's going to take care of them? They've just lost their husbands. Uh, Naomi's just lost her sons. And in that part of the world, men were the ones who went out and earned the livelihoods. Women worked at home. They worked out of the home. And because of that, because of the way their society was structured, Naomi has no way to provide for herself. She was hoping that her counting her two sons to be able to do that. But it turns out her two sons die. Uh, and then so she has nobody to provide for her. Her two daughters-in-law are in the same situation. And so Naomi, fast forward in the story here a little bit, tells her two daughters-in-law, uh, Ruth and Orpah, hey, look, I'm, uh, there's no future with me. I'm going to go back home. I'm going to leave Moab. I'm going to go back home to my home territory in Israel. Hopefully I can find some family there. Maybe somebody will show me some pity. Maybe I can um, eke out a, 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 and survive back home in Israel. But there's no future with me. And so you all, you're still, you know, you've still got some, some childbearing years in front of you. You might still be able to find a husband. Um, and so go and try and pursue that. And then you'll have some way to be provided for. And so Orpah says... That sounds pretty logical to me. Um, Okay, and so Orpah gives Naomi a hug, and she goes back to her family and stays there in Moab. But Ruth, Ruth makes a vow. She says in verse 16, Where you will go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people. In other words, I'm going to go back to Israel with you, Ruth, or Naomi, and your God will be my God. And here's her vow. She says, Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates me and you. Wow. That's remarkable loyalty. Ruth is basically wishing upon herself or taking upon herself Naomi's future, and Naomi's future looks very bleak. And Ruth is saying, I'm going to stand by your side. I'm going to stick with you until your dying breath. And may God deal with me ever so severely if I do anything other than that. Remarkable loyalty that Ruth shows here. Um, Now, they're both lost their husbands. Naomi's lost her sons. They're basically becoming beggars here. And then they have this massive journey from Moab back to 
uh, Naomi's home territory of Israel in front of them. So they skip forward in the story to chapter 2. Ruth and Naomi arrive in Bethlehem just as the harvest season's underway. Chapter 2 and verse 1 says, Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, and his name was Boaz. Verse 2, the Ruth, And Ruth, the Moabitess, said to Naomi. Now I want to stop right there for a second, because you, know, you notice here in the text that it points out where Ruth is from. It's like, yeah, we already caught that part in the story, but it's reiterating this point, and the reason why it's doing this is to remind us that Ruth is a Moabitess, that she is a non-Israelite, that she is not from, she's not in her homeland. And one of the things about that is, is that the Israelites didn't like to marry outside of national Israel. And so here comes this woman from a foreign land, from Moab, and she's coming into Israel. And so really what the text is saying here is that her prospects are some sort of a future are like next to none, right? It's just zero for her. And so the text is reminding, of that, of reminding us of that by reminding us that Ruth is a Moabite. Um, it says, verse 2, And Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, Let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi says, hey, sure, go for it. That's the only way we're going to be able to provide for ourselves. The only way we're going to be able to get a meal is for you to go out there in the fields behind the harvesters and glean what has fallen off of the wagon, basically, or didn't make it into their bushel baskets. Um, God had put in place a welfare system in this part of the world. And the way that he did this was, in Leviticus chapter 23 and verse 22, it describes it for us. God's talking to Moses here. He says, Moses, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or the gleanings of your harvest. That is the stuff that falls to the ground. Um, instead, leave that stuff for the poor and the alien, people like Ruth. I am the Lord your God. So what we're doing here is God has put in place a welfare system to take care of the poor, to take care of the oppressed, to take care of the alien, the people who weren't able to provide for themselves, or at least not in the same way that the rest of the folks were able to. And so what they do is Ruth, people like Ruth, would come in behind the harvesters and she would pick up off the ground or pick out from the edges of the field whatever had been left behind by the harvesters. Now we're talking about Jewish people here. It didn't strike you. It didn't hit you yet. Okay, Jewish people have got the last dollar or the first dollar that they ever earned, right? And so, I mean, you can imagine not everybody did what God commanded Moses and the people of Israel to do. I mean, they went, they went ahead and got everything out of those fields. They could look like a plague of locusts had come through the fields by the time these Jewish folks had gotten done. And so many of the Jews didn't honor the scriptures here in Leviticus chapter 23. But there was one guy who did. Coincidence, Ruth ended up in his field. All right, look at verse 3. It says, So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters as it turned out. She found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. Now, long story short here, because Boaz is related to Ruth's now deceased father-in-law, Elimelech, because of that, he has rights to be able to marry her before somebody else swoops in and says, Hey, there's a lady that I'd like to marry. He has the rights to be able to do that. A couple more verses, verse 4. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. So he walks up to his harvest field. He's got all the harvesters out there working in the field. And he says, the Lord be with you. And their response back is, and the Lord also be with you. See, Boaz was a man that was respected in the community. In part, because he allowed the poor, the oppressed, the disabled, widows to come and glean in his fields. He honored the scriptures. And the harvesters who are out there working in the fields are very aware. Hey, look, this is a guy who says... Go out and harvest the field, but leave the gleanings for those that have need. And so he's greeted warmly uh, by the workers in his field. Um, verse 5, 
Boaz asked the foreman, uh, um, uh, who, who, who is that over there? Who's that young lady? Uh, I'd like to meet her, right? Um, watch what happens next. Initially, initially, Boaz likes what he sees, right, in Ruth. But look at what really puts Boaz over the line, what really makes him uh, fall for her. It says in verse 6, The foreman replied, She is the Moabitess who came back from Moab with Naomi. Immediately, Boaz knows the character of Ruth. He knows the story of how this lady named Naomi had lost her husband and had moved off to a foreign land. And then while she was there, she lost her husband. She's lost her two sons. And now she's come back and there's this widow daughter-in-law of hers that has come with her as well and is there to serve her and take care of her and help her in the latter years of her life. And Boaz knows this story and he sees the loyalty. He sees the faithfulness. In Ruth, to be able to do something like that, to stick by Naomi, and that impresses Boaz. Look at what else impresses Boaz. Middle of verse 7, it says, Ruth has been in the field, the foreman says, and has worked steadily all day long, from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. So Boaz learns that Ruth is a hard worker, that she doesn't mind getting out there and getting involved and putting her, uh, her, her shoulder to the plow. And so to speak, Boaz learns that Ruth is faithful and loyal, and this is what impressed Boaz. This is what made him say, there's somebody, there's a gal, right, that I want to get to know. Um, okay, well, let's wrap this story up. Ruth and Boaz end up getting married. We read this, the verses just a few moments ago, chapter 4 and verse 13. Here comes the happy ending, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. Then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. Verse 16. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and cared for him. So not only is Ruth provided for in this happy ending story, but Naomi just the same. Naomi comes into the household of Boaz. Boaz provides for both of these ladies, and they're happily ever after. Goes on, verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son now. She has an heir. Um, and then the big, big, big giant part of the story here. It leads us into the next book of the Bible, uh, 1 Samuel, the story of David. It says, verse 17, And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of King David. Wow! Right? That was a great, great story. Amazing and how all of this led up to um, King David. Um, well, that's our treatment of the story from the Scriptures today. And so that takes us to the point in our sermon where we have to ask the question, right? It's the most important question, question you've been waiting on all morning. Wish you really gotten to it quicker, Gordon. What difference, right, does all of this make to my life? Um, yeah, I'm really glad for the story, really glad to learn about Ruth. I'm glad that some things worked out for her. But, I mean, it's Mother's Day, Gordon. we got other things going on around here. Kids are ready to wrap up school next week. What difference does all this make? How does this help me in my everyday life? Well, that's a really great question. Let's talk about that. As we saw there in verse 17 of chapter 4, that Ruth's great-grandson becomes the great King David of Israel. That is that Ruth somehow managed to pass along a generational blessing to Obed, Obed to Jesse, Jesse to David. And so with the time that I have left this morning, I want to just share with you three principles or three things that we can do to pass along a generational blessing to your children, to your children's children, to your great-grandchildren, right? That's what we want. 
We want to be able to pass that forward to future generations. So three things for you that you can, how you can be, or be a blessing to generations to come. Number one is to stay married for life. To stay married. You want to be a blessing to future generations. Stay married for life. You know, over the years I have learned that sometimes divorce really is the best and the biblical option. It's the right option for children. It's the right option for the relationship. Um, and there's, the Bible allows for that. Okay, There's some, search, some search, certain situations and circumstances that the scriptures give for when, they're, when it's the right time for divorce to take place. But in our culture today, one of the reasons that we put forward that the Bible doesn't put forward is incompatibility. Well, I just don't think I can live with this person. Right? We have irreconcilable differences. I mean, come on, the scriptures don't say anything about irreconcilable differences as a reason for divorce. Two generations ago in America, when sailors were coming home from war and getting married, in some circumstances, after only knowing their bride for a month or two, friends, those folks didn't have compatibility tests. They didn't have premarital counseling. They got married, and the reason why they stay married is because they were committed. Because they were committed. Um, what they had was commitment. What they had was a commitment that divorce was not an option. They took it off the table. And they figured out some way with God's help to work out their differences. Friends, you cannot put two sinners together under one roof who are self-motivated or self-directed, self-centered, and self-driven and get compatibility. It's impossible. That is a dream of Hollywood. It's something that we see in the movies, but you and I know that that does not live out in reality. Um, it just doesn't exist. Um, this has been several years back ago, so it's better that I can tell the story that it happened several years back ago. Um, it was Claire's birthday. Birthday was coming up. And uh, I went down and bought her a birthday present. It was an ice chest. Why are you laughing? And I came home with this new ice chest, one of those lift lid freezer things, you know. We, our, 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 free, our freezer part of the refrigerator was always full, and I was like, this is a great gift. This is something she can use every day. Our family will be blessed by it, right? Well, yeah, it didn't go over all that well. <laughs> Compatibility, friends, is, I mean, you know, again, you put two people under a roof who are, who are sinners or who are fallen creatures and friends, you're just not going to get 100% compatibility. The reason why people stayed together generations ago is because of commitment. Commitment is what they had. And let me say that I know that we have people here who have been divorced, and please know that we love you, that we are committed to you, that we are there for you, and we will continue to be. And if you're in a situation where you're thinking maybe one day you will remarry, then make sure that you find a godly man. Make sure that you find a godly woman. And make sure that this time it is for life. Stay married for life. Number two, a second way that you can be a blessing. Number one is to stay married for life. Number two is um, to live an authentic Christian life in front of your kids. To live an authentic Christian life in front of your kids. And I notice I didn't say a perfect Christian life in front of your kids. I said an authentic Christian life in front of your kids. Here's what I mean by that. When somebody calls up to the house and you don't want to take that call, don't tell your kids, hey, tell them I'm not home. Don't, don't, don't tell your kids, tell them I'm busy. I'm outside the yard mowing grass. 
Don't, don't do that. That's not being authentic. That's not being honest. Don't call into work sick so that you can go play golf, right? That's not being authentic. That's not being honest. Friends, children have a phony meter that is incredibly sensitive, right? And they know when we're not being honest. They know when we're not being authentic. And so that's what they need. They don't need us to be perfect. Children don't need us to be perfect. What they need is for us to be authentic. And friends, when we get it wrong, and we will get it wrong, what they need is for us to own that. What they need for us is to say, you know what? I messed up. I I made a mistake. I I said the wrong thing. I flew off at the handle. I let my my emotions get the better of me. Um, That's what kids need, for us to own our stuff, to be authentic, to be honest about our stuff, to be authentic in front of our kids. It's not how we handle it when we get it wrong that counts. Um, No, it is, actually. It's not that we get it right all the time that matters. It's how we handle it when we get it wrong. Don't you love it when you butcher your own, you know, quotables? So anyhow, let me say that one more time just so I let it sink in. It's not that we get it right all the time that matters. It's how we handle it when we get it wrong. Be authentic in front of your kids. Number three and last thing, if you want to pass a blessing on to future generations, is to be willing to give up your rights. Be willing to forgo your Christian freedoms uh, to protect the welfare of future generations. You say, what do you mean by that? Well, um, I believe, I'm, I'm not 100% sure about this. I'm, I didn't do, my, didn't do my background work on this one, but I believe it was the former president of the Fellowship of Christian Athletes who was making the point about how our children will, te- will live one step closer toward what the Bible calls sin than we do. Like, if we go out and we go dancing or something like that. They'll go out and they'll go dancing and they'll get into stuff that they shouldn't get into. So if we like walk close to the line, if we walk close to the fence of what God has set up as the boundaries of, hey, this is how you're supposed to live, this is how I want to live, and if we're walking around the edge of that fence all the time, then our kids are one step away from stepping across the line and getting into things that they shouldn't. As a Christian, can I go to Vegas, take in a show, have a great time, not fall into sin? Sure, you can do that. But do I want to take the risk that I'm going to get my children involved in something that could cost them their house, that could cost them their family, that could cost them their livelihood, that could cost them their reputation? Just because I want to go and play the slots, is it really worth that risk that I walk so closely to the line of what is right and what is wrong? As a Christian, can I have HBO and Cinemax and cable coming into my house and steer clear of the junk television that comes through on those particular networks? Sure. But do I really want to take the risk of having that coming into my house, of dangling a carrot out there in front of my children at a time in their life when they are most vulnerable, at a time in their life when they're emotionally not as mature to be able to handle that sort of material and to say no to it? Is it it worth that risk in taking? Friends, the reason why I'm a little bit prudish, if you know anything about me, you know Gordon can be a little bit of a prude. It happens, right? Um, So, One of the reasons why I'm a little bit prudish, one of the reasons why Claire and I are doing that is because we're trying to promote Christian values and a Christian lifestyle in our children and in our children's children. We make make a decision that we don't want to live right up close to the edge of where sin, one step away, can take place. And so we don't walk close to the edge because we've got a bigger goal in mind than just what I want to do and exercising at the limits of my Christian freedoms. 
Three things that you can do to pass along a spiritual blessing to future generations. Number one is stay married for life. Number two is to live an authentic Christian life. And number three is to be willing to forgo some of your Christian freedoms in order to protect the welfare of future generations. You say, Gordon, I got one final question for you. And here's the question. What if, what if I didn't come from a family like that? What if I didn't come from a family that's passing forward these generational blessings? I don't have that in my past. Well, did Ruth? Remember the point the text made? Ruth, the Moabitess, from a foreign land who did not know or worship the God of Israel. And yet Ruth made a decision about who she was, about who she was going to serve, about the kind of life she was going to live, and out of Ruth came a blessing for future generations. Ruth begat Obed, Obed begat Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. Friends, generational blessings are a part of the teaching of Scripture, and they can roll forward from your life with a simple decision that I, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's bow our heads together for prayer. Most gracious God, we thank you for speaking to us from your word today. We thank you for the challenge of just how impactful our lives are, for good and for bad. God, we ask that you would give us a vision of how you want our households to look, of how you want them to run, of the kinds of influences that are going to come into our homes. Or if we need to set up some boundaries, if we need to say no to some of the things that the rest of the world says, hey, this is okay, but your word says no. God, may we make those tough decisions. Future generations will be blessed because we do. We ask God that you, uh, during this time of communion, as we remember your broken body, as we remember your shed blood, that you would speak to our hearts in very practical ways, that you would bring some things to mind that we can do in our own homes to be a blessing to those that come after us. We pray these things in Christ's holy name. Amen.